Well, thank you, worship team and AV team and all of you who are here with us this morning. If you're a guest of ours today, you should have noticed in your bulletin that there's a a connection card. And that just gives us a a little information about you. We ask that you'd take a moment, fill those out, drop them off at the info bar after the service, out these double doors to the right. And so you don't feel singled out, filling something out on the backside is a place where everyone can put prayer requests that if there's needs in your life that you would like prayed for, you can fill those out. And also a place where as as we hear from the Lord this morning and sermon application, how the Spirit's moving, you can fill that out and drop those in the offering boxes on your way out. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Thad Yessa. I'm one of the pastors here at West Hills. Pastor Will is alive and well, but he is doing other things this morning. In fact, when we decided we were going to be going through this sermon series, I said, hey, I want this specific topic on the Holy Spirit. And he was like, hey, you can have it. It's you. Uh, If only we'd planned ahead next week on Halloween, we could have talked about the Holy Ghost. But that is okay. I'm excited to open God's word for you this morning. So many Christians, I think as a whole, rarely think about the Holy Spirit. God the Father, we know. God the Son, Jesus, we think about all the time. But God the Holy Spirit, there are fewer songs written about him, fewer meditations for us to reflect on, fewer churches named after him. He's mistaken sometimes as a force like that in the Star Wars saga. He's confused with a ghost in paranormal activities. Oftentimes he's just ignored or forgotten, and we need to ask the question, why is that the case? We might hear of his name mentioned in a baptism or in a prayer that the Spirit would help us, but what is it that he actually does? Who is he? What does he do? How does that change our lives? And frankly, why should we even care about the Holy Spirit? And we should be asking ourselves, okay, so how do we get to this point? If you're going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit, some might say it's simply because there aren't enough verses in the Bible to talk directly about the Spirit. And if we go based off word count, sure, I can understand how someone gets that. If you look at the word count, you see a whole lot more God, God the Father, Jesus, all of those other names for Jesus. The Holy Spirit subtly mentioned. Or we can say, you know, I've seen or experienced abuse of what people would say the Holy Spirit working through people being slain by the Spirit or services where people are running around or speaking in tongues or prophesying and we get really uncomfortable and be like, hold up, this isn't what I've signed up for. There's some crazy things going on. Or perhaps in, in an effort to not abuse what we have seen abused about the Holy Spirit, we just say like, hey, I'm just, I'm not going to talk about it because it's a little scary. It makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure how I feel about being indwelt by something. Healings, prophesying, like, yeah, that's not for us. We're not going to do that. And as a result, we become really self-reliant. If you want to grow a large church these days, it's really not that hard. 
You want to get the word out about your church, you hire a marketing team and a graphic designer, and they'll take care of making sure people know all about your church. You get them to come in the doors. You have a really big band that's really showy and lights, and hey, people will be like, man, this is really good. They, everything's looking great and put together, and then, hey, you get someone who can get up on stage with a microphone and speak, and they dress well, and they look good, and they can tell funny stories and jokes, and then, hey, you want a kid's ministry that's booming. You just build a slide from the second floor to the first floor as kids check in. And, hey, the kids can't wait to go to church. But here we have, we've built this church, an imaginary church that didn't require any work of the Holy Spirit. And, in fact, we can take it one step further and say we've become self-reliant in our own lives where we don't open our Bibles, and when we don't read them, and we don't pray and ask for the Spirit's help and guiding, and we ignore promptings by the Spirit to share the gospel. In fact, we just don't even care about telling other people about the good news of Jesus because we're so self-reliant. So this morning, I, I wanted to be helpful and applicable, and we're going to study some deep theology, but we shouldn't be afraid of deep theology. What's most important is how we apply what we're learning. So this morning, I invite you to be introduced or reintroduced to the Holy Spirit because our desire is to grow in knowledge of God. And if we're going to grow in our knowledge of God, we cannot ignore the person of the Holy Spirit. So I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. You can turn to John chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 15 through 31. And as we have with other sermons in this series, I'll invite you to respond with our statement of faith. So John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. Judas, not a scared, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to my Father. 
For the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And I invite God's people to respond. The Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The third person in the Trinity awakens and regenerates those who are being saved, indwells every believer, distributes spiritual gifts, produces spiritual fruit in the lives of the redeemed, and guides, instructs, corrupts, empowers, believes, for Christ-like living sermon. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning to help us, to help us understand some of the mystery of who you are. We pray that you would remove all distractions either in the room or things that have happened throughout the week that would draw our attention away from the word that you might do a work in us, that you might change us, convict us, challenge us, give us hope, that as a result of looking at your word, we pray that we would be changed more into the image of Jesus as a result of it. We pray that these would be your words and not mine, that I would cause no hindrance or distraction. We need your help this morning. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. If we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, I think it's important that we gain uh, a foundation of that, of what is the character of the Holy Spirit, or another way to put it is, who is the Holy Spirit? And we believe that there is one God eternally self-existing and fully expressed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that each member of the Godhead is equally God. Each is eternally God and each is fully God, not three gods, but three persons in one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence as each possesses fully the identically same eternal divine nature, meaning made up of the same stuff. And yet each is also eternal and distinct personal expression of the one undivided nature. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Will preached on who is God according to our statement of faith, and he put up a very helpful diagram of what is the Trinity, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but together they are God. That the Holy Spirit then, we need to understand, is fully God. He is not one-third God. He is not the JV member of the Trinity, but he is in fact fully God, just as Jesus is fully God, and God the Father is fully God, that collectively they make up the Godhead. In the Old Testament, it, we read of the Spirit, and he's referred to as a he, and then throughout the New Testament, we get more 
personal with it, that the he's become the comforter, the helper. And what we read in the Bibles is that the Spirit can be grieved, he can be resisted, he can be insulted. So he must be more than just an impersonal force because an impersonal force cannot do those things. And we read, as we just read, before ascending into heaven, Jesus said that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to be a counselor, a helper, a comforter, an advocate. Another way to read it is the one who comes alongside of us. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's coming to fill a void as Jesus goes away, that the presence of God will not leave them because the Spirit will come upon them. The Holy Spirit is capable of teaching, Luke 12, and unlike gravity and impersonal force, the Spirit can give us counsel. It can instruct us. It can invict us. So he is personal, he is fully God, and he is not a force. And in fact, we're introduced into the Holy Spirit in the very beginnings of the Christian Bible. In Genesis 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, that he is there when there is nothing and then there is chaos, that the spirit involved with the Trinity brings beauty out of the chaos, out of the darkness. And we continue in the creation account, we get to Genesis chapter 2 and we read in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him his spirit into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature that god formed a physical body of adam from the ground and breathed his spirit his life into adam and he became a living being that he is all powerful all knowing all present that he is the third member of the Trinity. And it's important. We cannot move on until we get this right, that we need God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, because if we take one of those, as we will see later on, away, we lose the gospel story. So that's a brief summary of who the Holy Spirit is. What is his character? That he is caring, loving, guiding. He is God. But what about the capacity of the Holy Spirit? And by capacity, I don't mean his limitations, because if he is God, he has no limitations. But by capacity, I mean, what is the amount of work that can be produced by the Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit actually do? And I think the answer can be summarized twofold. Is that the Holy Spirit saves and he sanctifies Now, if you're familiar with Christian tradition or the Bible, you might be thinking, hold up, I know the gospel, and I know it's Jesus who does the saving. And I'd say, you're right, Jesus does do the saving. And if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14 quickly, we'll see that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, work collectively in this. 
Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, fu- for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This passage should move us. It should bring comfort and joy to us that salvation is originated in God the Father. Verses 3 through 6 tell us that the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, that he predestined our adoption as children through Jesus Christ. The Father is the administrator of salvation. He oversees the process from beginning to end. That before the world began, God set his heart towards those he would save, not because they offered anything good, but because he loved us. And then we see that salvation is brought to fruition in the Son in verses 7 through 12, that everything the Father does for our salvation, he does through Jesus Christ. The work of the Son means redemption, adoption to the Father, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification, that he saves us horizontally, he brings fellowship among believers together, as well as vertically, that Jesus allows us to have a relationship with God the Father. And it is through the Son that we achieve salvation and come into that relationship with the triune God together. But salvation is communicated by the Spirit. You see, our disposition towards God, all of us when we are born, is that of wickedness and hatred towards God. When we spent a week looking at humanity, we are born sinful. All of us are sinful, and our hearts are wicked and hard towards the things of God. But the Spirit changes us from the inside out, performing the gracious act of regeneration, making anew. He awakens us, as our statement of faith says, to our sinfulness makes those who are asleep and unaware awake and aware of what's going on. And he makes us aware of our sinfulness, the conviction of our sin, 
our need of someone else to save us. We read in John 16, 8, that when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he convicts the whole world of sin. But those who believe because of the Spirit's moving in their hearts receive righteousness. And those who refuse the gospel receive the judgment. We've, you've probably heard this illustration of the gospel is that we are in an ocean, the waves are coming, and we're treading water, but we're going down, and Jesus throws, uh, God throws a buoy to us through the person of Jesus, and we've just got to grab on to that. I'll just tell you, that's a terrible illustration of the gospel, because truthfully, we are at the bottom of the ocean with dead hearts, not desiring God at all, but the Spirit moves within our hearts to change us. That the same Spirit that brought order to chaos and made dust come to life takes our dead, hardened, sinful hearts and makes them beat with a life that only God can give. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. So we had a heart of stone. It did not desire the things of God. And instead, God will graciously give us a heart of flesh. And with this awakening and regenerating and changing our status, making us aware of our sins and we believe the gospel, our relationship with God changes. No longer are we children of wrath, but we are adopted into the family of God, that he brings us into the family. And through the Holy Spirit, our salvation becomes a present reality, that we are sealed. It said that the Holy Spirit is the guarantor of your faith. That it's the work of the Spirit alongside the Father's plan and the Son's sacrifice that makes salvation possible for all people. But the Spirit doesn't stop there, so that's the He saves us, but then we move to the He sanctifies us. He begins the work of sanctification, which is really just a big word that says, make us more like Jesus. Because God is not a God who's content to leave us as we are, but wants to make us better, wants to change us, not just for our own good, but for the good of the whole world. Romans 8, the first 11 verses, Romans 8 is like the Holy Spirit chapter. It's got the most references to the Spirit as far as chapter content goes. And it says, There is therefore now no condemnation, to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the spirit frees us from sin. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the, to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So the spirit brings life, new life, and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. That's our disposition towards God, hostile towards God before salvation. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are now in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So not only does the Spirit convict us of our sin and bring us in relationship to God by awakening and regenerating us, it says that the Spirit now dwells within us. That because of what happened through Jesus on the cross, the Spirit does a work in our heart. Instead of us now having a spirit of flesh, we have the Holy Spirit. And that means that God is now not a long way off, but he is actually very close to us. As we read through the Bible beginning to end, we read about different places where God was located. Like in the tabernacle, they built the tabernacle and had that innermost sanctuary where the Spirit of God dwelt. And then after the tabernacle, we had the temple. And there was a special place that a huge curtain divided where the Spirit of God was. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we read in Matthew 27 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split, fulfilling what Jesus told the woman at the well and her questioning of where is it we worship God. And Jesus responded in John 4 that, but, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit of truth. That means that inside of us dwells the Holy Spirit. So that verse that says your body is a temple, it's more than just about eating healthy and exercising, but it is a reminder that God lives within you, that where heaven and earth meet is inside of you because the spirit has saved you. So when you are at your most alone, when you feel most unloved, when you feel most uncared for, when you feel most afraid, that means that God is with you. That we do not walk through this life alone as orphans, as Jesus corrected in John 14, but he says, I'm sending a helper, a comforter, someone who's going to bring you along. And the Spirit doesn't just save us and start the sanctification and indwell us, but he also gifts us. We, we all love gifts. Like if I had gifts for everyone, I think you'd all be really happy. Children especially love gifts. And we read in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's no different that the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And it says now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to the one who is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. 
to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by the spirit and to another working of miracles to another prophesy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues and all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills now some of you in these talk of spiritual gifts may be like really uncomfortable like what's going to happen we're talking about spiritual gifts is someone going to stand up and speak in tongues or am i going to call someone for to be healed these are gifts from the spirit it says in the bible that he is the one who gives these gifts but we need a correct understanding about spiritual gifts I think Pastor Sam Storns gives a helpful definition for spiritual gifts. He puts it this way, Spiritual gifts are the capacities or the abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity in order to serve other believers to the glory of God. Paul says that they are a manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit himself is manifested or disclosed or displayed in some concrete, tangible way when the Spirit, when the gifts are exercised. Spiritual gifts, therefore, are designed to draw attention to the Holy Spirit and to alert us to his presence and power. So the Holy Spirit imparts on all who are believers spiritual gifts for the purpose of not building ourselves up saying, look at me and look at what I can do, but so that we can glorify God and serve others. Now, in the list of spiritual gifts, you might look at them and be like, okay, well, I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'm not sure what giftings I have or I'm not sure what, I'm sure I don't have this gifting and I don't want this gifting. But the giftings we need to remember are not about us. They are about God and his church. And we should recognize the great grace that we've received and that every ability that each of us has is because God has given it to us. The gifts of God are to make us flourish, to serve the church, to glorify God by telling a lost and dying world about Jesus. So when we look and we see other people using their giftings for the church, we should rejoice because the church is made up of many members, all with different giftings and different abilities, and we need those different giftings and abilities to build up God's church, not our church, God's church. So we rejoice that we are different from each other. We rejoice at what God can accomplish because we are different from each other. That God can accomplish his purpose in unity. The spiritual gifts are meant to cause unity, not disunity. And to reach a lost and dying world. Now perhaps you, you're sitting there and you know that this is not the only account of spiritual gifts. And you're like, well, I kind of wish I had different spiritual gifts. Ones that I could use differently. And I have two responses to that. I, say, I would say, first, remember that the giftings that God has 
given to you, and that's what it is, that God has given you those spiritual gifts specifically for you to use for God's glory. And second, take it to the Spirit who is the manifestation of these gifts and say, Holy Spirit, I, I think I have this gifting. I want to be able to have this gifting. I want to use this gifting and ask him to give it to you. Or ask the Spirit to illuminate in your heart where there is sin that is quenching the Spirit. And we'll be like, man, I really wish I had that spiritual gift of evangelism. Well, maybe it's because you've been pushing aside the Spirit's prompting to share the gospel with your coworker who you've known for 10 years. And that's why you don't have the gift of evangelism because you've pushed it aside. That these giftings aren't meant to make us seem special. They're meant to just magnify God in all of his glory. And as the Spirit works in sanctifying us and gifting us, there should be these indicators of change that we are actually being made more like Jesus. We read in Galatians 5 what some of those indicators are that the fruit of the Spirit, so the result of growing in the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying in one another. What this passage is saying is like, hey, your life should emulate those fruits of the Spirit. Which means all of us need to take a long look in the mirror and into our hearts and ask the question, when people look at me, when people talk to me, when people spend time with me, are these fruits of the Spirit evident? And if they're not, we ask for forgiveness. And we ask the Spirit to work and change us to be more like Jesus so that we can show these fruits of the Spirit. Because if the Spirit is working to change us to be more like Jesus, it will look like these fruits. But we, we need to ask, like, why isn't that the case? Why don't don't I emulate these? And James 1 gives us a good answer. James says that each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desires come, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Frankly, it means that even though we've been filled with this spirit of God, that we still love the flesh so much that we still give into temptation. It's not the Spirit leading us into temptation. It's our own hearts that are like, this is better than Jesus today. Or this is going to bring me the satisfaction that I'm not finding. And our hearts are drawn away. And as we grow older in our Christian faiths, our prayer is that these fruits become even more evident. For those who, who would say they are seniors older, there's a stereotype that, that comes along with that, and that's that old people are crotchety, curmudgeons. They're unhappy. Older saints, let that not be said of you. 
Let the joy of Christ dwell in you richly that you would show tiny children what it looks like to live a life that loves God. I think back into my own story of the gospel that I believed at a young age of six years old and everything was really great and I went to church and and all these things and then when I was a freshman my family moved from New York to South Carolina and I was bitter and angry and upset. And it took a loving youth pastor to take me out to lunch and he goes very bluntly, Thad, are you a Christian? And I pretty much just shrugged it off and said, of course, yeah, I've known Jesus a whole long time. And in his love, he goes, you are the most joyless Christian I have ever seen. You should not be laughing. That is testament to my love of the flesh. Friends, we need to love Jesus so much more than our own hearts that we are changed by it. The Spirit not only indwells us and disperses gifts, He grows us to be more like Jesus, and He also guides, instructs, equips, and empowers. Now I thought about asking Pastor Will if I could just preach two weeks and then cover the rest of these, but didn't want to get too greedy with pulpit time. But we need to recognize how the Spirit actually guides us. If we're talking about the Spirit guiding us, leading us, we sing it in songs, we pray for it. What does that actually look like in our life? How do we discern between our own thoughts and His leading after all, the, the Spirit, it's not a voice from heaven speaking down to us, but he guides us through our own conscience, as Romans 9 says, and also in utter, seemingly subtle, quiet ways. One of the most important ways to recognize the Holy Spirit's guidance is to be familiar with God's Word. We, we preached on the Bible a couple weeks ago that the Spirit guided the writers of the Christian scriptures. Therefore, if we want to know what the Spirit is saying to us, we should read the Bible. That the Bible is the ultimate source of wisdom about how we should live, 2 Timothy 3.16. And that believers are to search the scriptures and meditate on them and commit them to memory, Ephesians 6.17. That the Word is the, is the sword of the Spirit. And the Spirit will use the Scriptures to speak to us, to reveal God's will for our lives. He will also bring specific Scriptures to memory in times of need when we need them most. John 14, 26, He's sending a helper who will teach you these things. Knowledge of God's Word can help us discern whether or not our desires are coming from the Holy Spirit or it's just our fleshly hearts. We need to test our inclinations against Scripture because the Holy Spirit will never prod us to do anything contrary to God's Word. If it conflicts with the Bible, then I can tell you, friends, it is not from the Holy Spirit and should be ignored. It's also necessary for us in our communication with the Spirit that we have prayer with the Father, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. 
Not only does this keep our hearts and minds open to the Spirit's leading, but it allows the Spirit to speak on our behalf. We read in Romans 8 that I referenced earlier in 26 and 27, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to God's will. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning where life is not all all great for you. And life is seemingly hard. And it just seems difficult. And you just don't even know how to pray. What this passage is telling us is that that is okay because the Spirit of God lives in you and He knows what you need and He will intercede on your behalf. That we should ask the Spirit to do this for us. That we should be changed by it. And you may be wondering like, okay, so we, we know who the Holy Spirit is now. We know what it does, but what does that actually mean for us this morning, tomorrow morning, next week, next month? And what we'll see is that the control of the Spirit, not that he is acting as a puppet master inside of us, telling us exactly what to say, moving our arms, helping us walk, pumping our hearts like this little virus living in our brain, controlling us, but in fact, we want to see what it would look like if we gave up control to the Holy Spirit. That in fact, we would live a spirit-filled life and what that would look like if we stopped being so self-reliant in our abilities and our thoughts and be more reliant on the Holy Spirit. And I think it starts with you will start each morning with a desperate dependence for help on the Holy Spirit. That just as you couldn't save yourself, you recognize that you cannot grow to be more like Jesus without the Spirit's work in us because as I've already said, although we have the Spirit living in us, the flesh is weak. And we love the shiny things of this world that draw us away. I think, too, it's your life will demonstrate more and more of the walk of the Spirit that we read in Galatians 5 and will be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. I think Paul uses walk very specifically. He uses this metaphor to walk or to run the race or to keep going, throwing aside weights. And I think he uses it to encourage us to keep moving forward. That even when you don't feel like you're running, skipping, frolicking, prancing, sprinting, when that is not how you would describe your spiritual life or your sanctification process, maybe this morning you're like, truthfully, becoming more like Jesus feels like a grind. Like I am like crawling in the mud, trying to be more like Jesus. Or I can't even crawl, I'm just kind of rolling side to side. But what Paul is getting at is that the further progress we make, the more we look like Jesus. That we don't give up because the Spirit is the guarantor of it and we will receive glorification when God brings us 
Oftentimes we say, hey, don't quit. Don't give up. Keep moving. Keep desiring to be changed. Keep looking like those fruits of the Spirit. Keep striving to be more and more like Jesus. I mean, think about it. Imagine if our church, like churches, they get described in different ways. Imagine if our church was described by those nine fruits of the Spirit, that everyone here, like those were characteristics of us, that people look at and they're like, man, they're so loving and kind and patient and gentle. How far that would go in a very angry, chaotic world. We see that your life and your study of God's word will become more meaningful with giving control to the Holy Spirit. That when you ask the Spirit, Spirit, will you lead me, guide me, shape me, change me? As I open the Bible, that is sometimes very confusing. Would you help me to understand and be changed by it? We don't read our Bibles merely just to check it off the daily list. We should be reading our Bibles to be changed by it. That the Spirit will convict us and move us and guide us and we would be changed by our prayer life and our reading of the Scriptures. But we can't do that unless we go to the Spirit and ask for help. Because really there's two ways to read the Bible. We can open it up like any book, read a couple verses, close it and be done. Or we can pray and ask for help and read it and ask the question, what is the Spirit trying to teach me this morning or this afternoon or this evening? And when you have that answer, you apply it to your life. You'll experience his power in witnessing and your desire to see the lost saved. We read in, in Acts chapter 1 of all the great things that is done through the Spirit, his power to use weak, flawed individuals to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And we read of hundreds of thousands of people being saved and baptized in the New Testament. And we should long to see that done here in St. Louis, that there would be revival. We quote our benediction every week, as you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we just saying that or are we living it? Because if we're living it, we will have a desire to see the lost saved. That as God had t taken our hard, sinful, far from him hearts and made it beat again with new life, we should desire to see that done in other individuals. And if we don't, I'm fearful that we've lost our love of the gospel because the gospel should bring about change and one of those changes is to see other people experience the best news. We see that you'll be prepared for spiritual conflict against the world, 1 John 2, against the flesh, Galatians 5, against Satan, 1 Peter 5. That as we embrace the Spirit having control and stop relying on ourselves, that the Spirit is the come-alongside friend who is going to help us. One theologian, John Knox, he had this phrase that he would say, be spare no arrows. 
And he gets that from reading in the Old Testament about coming up against a battle against Babylon, the wicked one. And it says, God, Yahweh, spare no arrows. Fire every single arrow you have to drive back the wickedness and the darkness. And as we read the scriptures, we remember that we are in a war, a spiritual war that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And friends, we need all the ammunition we can get. We need to load up on the arrows that we find in the scriptures of the lies that the world, that Satan, that our friends throw at us that are contradicting to the scriptures and say, hey, I'm sparing no arrows to fight back those lies that are being thrown towards me. I think lastly, these ones go together, you will experience his power to resist temptation and sin. That as you load up on those arrows, that as you are tempted, and remember, our temptations are not because God's bringing them to us, but because of our own sinful desires. We can fight back temptations with the ammunition that we have, with reading verses like in Ephesians and Romans 8 and Romans 9 and the Gospel of John, and we read those and we're brought back to mind like Jesus is so much better than this fleshly desire, and we are changed by it. It it, it gives me chills thinking about what God could do through our church if these six things were evident in all of our lives. I talked at the beginning about a church growing with marketing and a band and a cool speaker and whatever, and that's great, but that's not led by the Spirit, and that doesn't bring change. But a church that desires to give up self-reliance and trust and rely on the Holy Spirit that would be a church that could see great things happen. That would see souls saved, hearts changed, marriages saved, children growing up in the faith. My prayer is that many, many years from now, we might have uh, an opportunity to share testimonies of God's work in our lives. And I long for that day when individuals would stand up and they'd be able to point across the room and say, I'm here because so-and-so shared the gospel with me. I'm here because so-and-so shared every day for two years the gospel with me. I'm here because so-and-so showed me how broken and empty my life is and that there is hope beyond this. And friends, we can do that. The Spirit empowers to do that, but we can only do it if we welcome the Spirit to give up self-control and say, Spirit, I want you to empower and prompt me. That we do not ignore that little voice or that nudge that we're feeling. Man, I should really tell that person the gospel. Or I should tell that person about Jesus. And we don't do it because we become so self-reliant. But friends, there is hope. This morning we can ask God to forgive us of where we've quenched the Spirit, of where we've disobeyed Him, of where we've rejected Him, 
and remember the story of the gospel that God resurrected our dead, lifeless bodies and gave us new life, new purpose, and new identity.